Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming. We're glad that you're here. Wyoming Valley Church, welcome. My name is, is Mel Walker, and I'm one of the pastors that are here. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we're going to continue our study uh, in the book of James, which you can see the theme is growing up for God. Practical lessons in spiritual maturity. And um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the message today because I think that this is something that is incredibly practical and it fits our theme. And uh, it, it, it really is one of those things that God has given us uh, strategies. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, practical ideas, practical plans in His Word to help us to live for God. And uh, he, His Word, we're going to hear that today and learn about that today. His Word is designed for us to learn, but also to live by the principles of God's Word. I need to tell you a quick story as we get started. When our children were little, uh, we lived in Iowa, and uh, Christy was in uh, our daughter, who's one of our, who's our missionary from our church. But Christy was in elementary school. I forgot what grade er, early on. And she would, uh, we lived in this, uh, in, in Ankeny, Iowa, which is probably, especially in those days, was one of the safest communities in the United States. So don't judge me for this story. But even though she was really little, she would walk to school. It was only a couple blocks where we, from where we lived. And, and from time to time, not always, but uh, with the neighborhood kids, uh, our children, and Christy was young at this time, would walk to school with the neighborhood kids. And so in the morning, the, Peggy got up and was helping the kids get ready for school, you know, and back in those days especially, I remember this particular day, Christy had this little dress on, you know, first grader or whatever, and, uh, and white tights, which has something to do with the story, and I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. And so Christy leaves, you know, goodbye, honey, have a good day, we're praying for you. Christy leaves. And uh, within just a few moments, I'm getting ready to go to my job at the college at Faith where I work. And all of a sudden, Peggy, and she's not here to hear me tell the story, she's in the back with the children, lets out this blood-curdling scream, which I realized was uh, a serious problem. For, and I'm making it a whole lot more dramatic than it was, of course. Uh, but she lets out this scream, and so I come running out from our room to find out what the problem was. And typical male, typical husband to find out how I could save the day. And the serious problem that Peggy noticed at that moment, which was uh, an incredibly serious problem, is that Christy forgot her trinket for show and tell. I mean, that's a terrible thing, right? I mean, that's a terrible thing. My parents would have said, tough. Uh, you know, there's no way that my dad would. But I, I, you know, I'm not my dad. I'm going to save the day. So I said to Peggy, I'll finish getting dressed. I'm a little early. I will track down Christy. It's like two blocks. I will find her. I will save the day. And I will give her the trinket for show and tell. So I get in my car. I got the thing, whatever it was. And I drive down the street from our house to the school, like I said, a couple of blocks. And uh, when I caught up with Christy, the kids that she was normally walk with were out in front of her. And Christy was behind them several steps with her head down, and you could just see that she was dragging along. And that wasn't, I mean, if you know her at all, that wasn't even her personality. <coughs> and so I pull over, and as I pull over to Christy, I notice she's crying. And I also noticed that uh, the knees on her white tights had, 
she had fallen and she was like bleeding a little bit from her knees. And I'm thinking, uh, I'm like, wow, what happened? So I get out and I run over and, you know, Christy, honey, what's wrong? And she sees me and cries, you know, and it's like, you know, daddy, they, the kids were <coughs> picking on me. They were tripping me and knocking my legs out for me. And, uh, and she wasn't hurt badly or whatever, but I'm thinking, wait, my little girl, right? And again, don't judge me. Uh, I'm not sure what you would do. But within the next um, couple moments, I kind of did a bad thing. The kids were up in front, and so they kind of saw me with Christy, and, and I knew all the kids. I knew all of them all. And so I just kind of pulled up in my car, and Christy's now, this is way before the car seat or the seatbelt thing, and I pull up, and I roll down my window, and I kind of did a bad thing. But I thought it through, and I figured, okay, the oldest one is probably a third grader. I can take him. <laughs> you know, I, I thought it through. And so I yelled. I don't know what you would do. Don't judge me. I don't know what you would do, but I rolled down my window, and I kind of yelled at these kids for picking on my daughter. And I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. And the kids just looked at me and walked away. That was the sum total of it. So I got Christy back in the car, and it was like one more block to school. And so I'm thinking, okay, I, I say, you know, I had... I gave Christy my handkerchief and, you know, wiped her tears. I turned her tights around. I figured that's a good plan so the, 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 the bloody knees don't show. I did. I'm not sure if that was a good plan or not. But I turned them around because no one will notice the, the rip in the back. No one will notice that. And, and so I take my daughter to school. And by the time we got to school, um, she felt better, and I felt great. And I, I, went to, I went to work at the college, and all day long I'm thinking, <coughs> I am a hero. I saved the day. I protected my daughter from the hordes of third graders, and uh, I <coughs> I saved the day. And so, and my day went great. To be real honest with you, I had taken care of my daughter. I, I did the right thing. I defended my daughter, uh, and I felt great until I got home that night. I walked in the house, and I could tell there was a cloud in the house from something. I walk in, put my stuff down, and Peggy says to me right then. You better go talk to your daughter. What? And so sure enough, Christy was back in her room, and she was, I walked in her room, and she was seated on her bed and crying again. And so I walk over to her, and she sees me, and you can just tell she's mad at me now, and she cries even more. And she said, Dad, it's all your fault. In one moment of my life, I went from being a hero to being the goat, all in one moment of my life. And so I went over and sat by Christy on the bed, and she tells me the story that because I yelled at her friends, the rest of the day they picked on her worse. And I'm like, oh, man, my heart's breaking. You know what? My little girl's in first grade, and I thought I did the right thing. Yeah, I shouldn't have yelled at the kids. I mean, again, I, I figured third graders, I could take them. But, uh, but you know, and, and so... Supper came, and Christy's in a funk, and Peggy's mad because I did something to Christy, and, you know, and the whole thing. And then we, that, that, uh, that particular time, we were reading um, Proverbs for our family devotions that night. And, uh, yeah, there was this uh, cloud in the room, you know, that uh, I had gone from being a hero to being a goat. And Christy was still upset with me. And we were reading, and I forget now, I should have looked it up but one of the early chapters of Proverbs where it talks about people who were once your friends end up picking on you and uh, 
causing problems or whatever. And I'll never forget this moment. And I probably, I was talking to Christy actually about this story yesterday. And uh, as I'm reading the Bible, reading the Bible, this children's Bible that we had, I could just watch Christy. All of a sudden, her eyes got real big. And all of a sudden, her mouth dropped open. And Christy, again, if you know her, if you know her personality, said, Dad, that's talking about me, isn't it? And my little girl realized that day that God's word relates to life. And that's the thing that I want us to highlight this morning. And that is the Bible is clear that God's word relates to life. It's probably a whole lot more important than a first grader. But God's word has principles that relate to life. And here's the principle that we're going to talk about. God wants us to do something about what we learn from God's Word. God wants us to learn to do something about what we learn from God's Word. That's the principle. And so I'm going to talk with you about strategies for spiritual success from James chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn there. James chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 19 and going down through verse 27. And I have these verses on the slide if you can see that. Uh, James 1, starting with verse 19. So then... My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Pastor Todd talked to you about this last week. Slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. If any of you, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religious religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You have the basic outline there in your notes if you have a copy of that, and uh, you're welcome to pick up a binder and keep track of our notes together. And so we have some things, and so I want to work through this passage and talk with about what I'm calling today strategies for spiritual success. And I think you'll find this passage to be very practical, and it helps us implement in life what God is trying to teach us. Notice, Pastor Todd talked about this last week. I, my wife and I were on the road last week, and thank you for praying for us as we were gone. But I had a chance to watch the video this week. And Pastor Todd talked about verse 19 and 20 last week. And I'm just going to backtrack a little bit. But I want you to notice that that passage starts with that phrase in English. Or I'm studying from the the New King James Version this morning, with that phrase, so then. And I want you to know that actually, in the Bible, 
there is again, there is a writing technique, and later on down verse 21, it uses the same idea of the word in English, the word therefore. But this one is a little bit different. This passage starts off by the Apostle James saying this. This is really the definition of that word, and that is know this, or in other words, this is important. It's like even that phrase is to be highlighted in our Bibles. Because of what you've learned, now we just finished talking about trials. The believers, the Jewish believers in James's time were scattered abroad. Remember a couple weeks ago I talked with you about that. Because of the persecution. And they were going through incredibly hard times, trials. They were also facing severe temptation. Temptation was the solicitation to sin. And so then he says, so then. And again, I love James's language where he says, my beloved brethren. We are family, he's saying. He's saying, this is, this is the family of God. We're family. You're my brothers and sisters. You're family and you're beloved. That's an incredible word of endearment. And so he's saying, what I'm about to say is in a context of this is important because we're family. And I love you dearly. And so it's in that context that he starts. And here's principle number one that he says to his family is he basically says this, learn to live for God. And it is a process where we have to learn that. Learn to live for God. And again, Pastor Todd talked last week about three strategy steps. And and it starts off, be, be swift to hear. That's an interesting, I thought about that when I was listening to Todd's message last week. Be swift to hear? I mean, that's not a term that we normally use in language, right? My friend Bob is talking to me, and I'm going to hurry up and listen. Mostly not. But, but no, I mean, here's the point. Not necessarily quick as in fast as I'm going to run as fast as I can, or I'm going to be as swift as I can. It's a term that implies action. It's a term that, that I would say, be intentional about hearing. And I don't know if you... Um, consider yourself an extrovert or an introvert or what your personality type is. But I think the Apostle James would say, be intentional about paying attention and listen to what other people says, other people say, and listen to what God says. Be slow to speak. That is sure different than what many of us do today. Again, I don't know if you consider yourself an extrovert or an introvert or whether you think you have a forum to have people listen to you, or whatever. God's word, the Apostle James would say, slow slow down, be slow to speak. And then he also says, be slow to wrath. That's an interesting term. I mentioned this one time a year or so ago here at our church. In the Bible, and I'm going to do this quickly and then move on to the other steps. But in the Bible, when God talks about anger and wrath, human anger, I'm not talking about the righteous anger where we're righteously indignant or anger about, angry about sin, but I'm talking about human anger. There's normally, in the Bible, there's actually two different t- kinds of anger. One is an outburst. Do you ever, um, probably somewhere along the line, all of us have been, 
You ever be around an angry person that you really can't tell what's going to set them off? I have briefly um, mentioned this to you before. Um, in a lot of ways, my dad was like that. When we were growing up, and I saw my dad uh, drastically, radically changed by God. But my dad had this violent temper. And you never knew. One thing would be fine, and you do the same exact thing some other time, and it'd be, it'd set him off. That's one kind of anger. There's another kind of anger in the Bible that means that seething below the surface, no one ever knows, but you hold a grudge type anger. I think here James is saying, be slow to wrath. In other words, don't be an angry person where, here's, here's, Anger is not the only one, by the way, right? But if you've known somebody who is an angry person, you know that um, those people are often controlled by their temper, right? And so then this, which, this is one of those phrases. I said this to Pastor Todd last week before he even preached on it. And remember the week even before that when his back was hurt and I was... You know, this is one of those passages that God used to kick me in the pants. Can I say that in church? Okay. Um, human anger does not, this is the NIV because I love this translation. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Somehow today we've gotten the idea that there's this righteous anger and God's, Apostle James would say, no, no. Human anger does not produce the righteousness, the right living that God desires. The term, the idea of righteousness in the scriptures is, um, is basically right living. Living the way God wants us to live. And so James would say, and started off this passage by saying, learn to live for God. Human anger. Human anger, be slow to anger. Don't let that control you because that is not living the, righteously the way God desires in life. The righteousness, that phrase, the righteousness, the right living, living in life. We're going to talk about that all day, the way that God desires. Um, here's the phrase again. We're going to make a transition to number two, but I highlighted by the magic of Microsoft, the word turned yellow. Okay, then here's the word in verse 21. Now, therefore, okay, because of what I just said, again, highlight that. Because of what I just said, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Be so then, so then this, and here's what he says. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. I love that phrase, which is able to save your soul. So, Number two in our outline, I talked about for that reason, consequently. So then, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires, so then this, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So let's go to number two. Number two is then simply in my little outline is lay aside sinful practices. I wanted to make sure that even though all of my points today um, 
are alliterated. They start with L. And it's not that big a deal other than I want you to know that this also in the text, and there's a lot of them today, but this also is a specific action step. Uh, I've talked to you about this before. James starts and he says the phrase, lay aside, right? I was going to do this today because the last time I talked to you about this phrase, I used a visual aid. I wore a sport coat and I said that I wore a sport coat today just so that I could take it off. And I'm not going to do it today because it seemed hot and humid today, right? So I just bagged that and I'm just going to talk to you about it. Lay aside. Here, humor me. Take something that's in front of you. Take something. Take it and put it away, right? It, it's, it has that specific of an idea. In other words, here, James is saying, get rid, lay aside the sinful practices in your life. In other words, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of his word, gives you the ability to quit sinning. You can actually lay those aside by our being intentional and say, I don't want to do that anymore, and I'm going to do whatever I can to not do that anymore. Does that make sense? That's really the idea. This verse has some, I think, incredibly descriptive language that's here. And, and we don't talk this way before or, or nowadays. Filthiness is like when you get your hands dirty or you're outside playing all day with grass stain or whatever. But here that word is to lay aside all filthiness. It has the idea in the text of moral sin of immorality, in other words, even of sexual immorality. Get rid of that in our lives and don't allow yourself to be trapped in that. And then, and then this, the overflow, verse 21, the overflow of wickedness. Pastor Todd usually preaches from the ESV, right? And the word for overflow there is rampant out of control. It's that idea. I'm going, to prob I'm going to use one of the simplest illustrations that I ever have, and TGD, who comes to clean the church, and Pastor Todd, and Dan, who's a deacon, forgive me for this, but here, here's my illustration. I brought a bottle of water and a glass, right? When we sin in our lives, we often think it's a little bit, it's not that big a deal. And then we put some more into our life. It's still a little bit. It's not a big deal. And then we put some more, and 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 we put some more. So I already asked for forgiveness before I do that. And pretty soon there's an overflow. Simple, simple, dumb illustration. And I got water all over. But that's what happens with sin. Filthiness... Moral sin has a way of becoming all sin. Let me back up. Has a way of becoming a habit. And here's the principle I think that James wants us to learn is that practices of sin produce an abundance of sin. You know, you know it, right? Um, lying. It's just one little white lie. 
It starts by that. And pretty soon, we become a liar, stealing. I remember uh, when I was a kid, I was telling Pastor Todd this story. I, I don't even know why. I stole a pen from a store in our town, Montrose. Little, I thought it was the nicest pen I ever seen. And uh, there was a distraction, and I took it. That night I'm home, and I was, I've never been real bright. And so I, I'm not, I probably never could get away with a life of crime, stealing pens. But um, that night I'm using the pen. And my dad said, where'd you get the pen? And I'm like, uh. <laughs> and so my dad, that night, marched me back, and I had to apologize, and I had to give them back their pen. And, I, and he made me work for the store owner for a while. I kind of learned it's not a good idea to steal, right? It's not a good idea to steal pens from the store in Montrose. That's not a good idea. And especially, you know, I used it in front of my dad. It wasn't, it wasn't real bright. But stealing can become a habit to pretty soon it's a habit of theft, moral <coughs> sin. It's a little, big, a little thing. It's not a big deal. And then it becomes a lifestyle. And James would say, my illustration of the water, the overflow, the rampant, it becomes out of control. And that's why he says, because, remember, human wrath or human sin does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So then, lay aside, specifically, put it away, take it off, as the Apostle Paul would say. In other, put aside sin and that the overflow of righteousness. And then it moves on to number three, where it tells us what to do instead. One of the things that I love about the scriptures is the times where the writers, and Paul does, the Apostle Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, the, the words, the letters that Paul writes, he talks about this a lot too. But here James does that as well. The principle of replacement. Instead of this, do this. So instead of the sin, or in this case, something that could help us with the sin, then do this. And it brings us to number three, where James would say, my paraphrase is live by God's word. There in verse 21, down through verse 25, let me read it again. And receive, or maybe even but receive, with meekness, the humility, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word. I love that. Underline that in your Bibles if you do that. And not, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a person observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man or what kind of person he was. Verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the mirror illustration again, and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one shall be blessed. This one shall receive even a blessing from God, the happiness that comes by living for God in their life. And so here is the put off, put on, the principle of replacement, what to do instead of those practices of sin. Receive, first of all, the implanted word. The implanted. Now, I grew up, some of you did too, 
with King James Version, and it uses the term, I think, engrafted, which is really not what James is talking about. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're into gardening, and I, I've never tried this, but the, I've, I've, read, I've heard about it like in biology class or whatever, you can graft a branch in. That's really not the idea here. The idea is that God's word needs to become a, such a part of our life that it is at home in our lives. Receive the implanted. It's planted in there. It's at home in our lives. And that's how important the word of God is. And so James is making that incredibly practical. And it, it, it takes root. It grows there in your life, the word of God. And uh, it becomes a part of our life. Number, and, and I think here's the point. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, you can at least jot this reference down. And I know you know this. And that is, God's word says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God produces faith in our lives. That's why we spend time here in our church. And that's why some of us as individuals spend time in our lives in the word of God. Because God uses his word. I think sometimes in life, sometimes humanly, we get the idea. I grew up in church. I've told you the story before. I'm a church kid. My parents were not in ministry, but I was in church the first Sunday I was ever alive. And looking back, so I've been in church a lot over my life, right? You know that. I'm going to tell you a secret. You ready? I shouldn't say this because it'll ruin everything for Pastor Todd and for me from now on. But here's the secret. You ready for this? I remember very few of the sermons I've ever heard in my life. I forgot most of them. <gasps> a pastor, a preacher, is telling you, you'll forget what I said. Yeah, you will. That's not the point. Here's a principle, I think, that if James were here, I think he's talking about in our lives, and that is the Word of God, when we learn the Word of God, when God's Word is taught, it's not like learning math. It's not like learning history. Are any of you math nuts? You know, you, sometimes, you know, math comes easy or math comes hard, right? I mean, it's just kind of like how you're wired. I mean, I don't know if you're geography or if you're one of those persons that can name every body of water in the world and name every river and name every country and, you know, the capitals and, you know, and all of that geography or history, you know, dates. If I told you date in history, you could, you know, I don't, I don't know. If, but that's not the point that you remember, although I think God wants us to work on biblical literacy. I think he does. But here's the point. God gave us his word to change our lives. I remember very few of the thousands of messages I've heard. But I remember a couple. Can I tell you about them? I was five years old. Five years old, and I'll never forget. And I tagged along with my older brother to Good News Club, part of the Child Evangelism Fellowship Ministry in my hometown. And the lesson I'll never forget, the lesson was on John 3.16, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I know that's probably the most familiar verse in all the Bible, but I'll never forget it, because God used John 3.16 to save this little kid's life, to, save my, to, to change my heart. God used his word, and my life changed because of the word. It was several years later, and I've told you this story tons of times. And I was in Mercy Hospital in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Every time I drive by Mercy, I stop and think, this, or it's regional hospital now, this is holy ground for me. Because I was had shoulder surgery, I was in the hospital, and I couldn't even turn to my Bible. And on that little hospital bed, or hospital tray that swings around where they put your food, was my Bible and uh, a glass of water. And my pastor came down and shared with me, because he wanted to get my goat, he shared with me a verse from Hebrews 12, where it says, the Lord loves those he chastens. And like a five-year-old kid, I knew that God loved me enough to give his son for me. As a college kid with his shoulder in a sling and his other hand in an IV, I couldn't even look at my Bible. I'm staring at Hebrews 12. The Lord loves those he chastens. And it hit me that day that God word says that God loves me enough to have something better for my life than that. So I may forget a whole bunch of messages, but I can remember too, because God used his word to change my life. And I think that's the point. And so then God says here in his word, that that word needs to be at home in your life and to be sensitive to the word of God because it's born there. It takes up root there to be doers of the word and he actually uses that phrase over and over and over again to be doers of the word and so i think here i think it's important and this is kind of the theme and we're going to go rapid fire the rest of the way this morning but to be doers of the word is this and that is do something please james would say james would say my beloved family members i love you please do something about what you learn do something I think, and what I try to do, is every single time that I go to the Word of God, I, I try to say in prayer, okay, God, what do you want me to do as a result of what I've learned today? What do, we, what do you want me to do? Be doers of the Word. We spend a lot of time, a lot of money in churches today, sound systems and all of this to help people hear, which is great. James would say, okay, what are you going to do about what you heard? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then he says basically this, okay, 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 continue, keep doing, keep doing what you've learned. And I love, I love James as a writer. James is writing here and he writes, and I'm not going to take the time to read it. You reread it again. He uses an illustration of a mirror, right? He says, we're kind of like a person that goes to a mirror. You look in the mirror and you're like, okay, yeah, I see that. And then you walk away and you forget what you saw. I've told you this story before, I think, as well. I taught in colleges at Clark Summit University and at Faith Baptist Bible College for about, I don't even know, over 15 years of my life. And back in those days, if some of you see, we used the overhead projectors. Remember those things? Some of you have seen those? And they had those overhead projectors where you could put these plastic sheets that were called acetate. And finally, we figured out how you could put collar on them. And I'm that guy that I travel around with a, with a set of markers that had eight different colors. I had purple and yellow and green and blue and red. And I was that guy. 
And every single time I would, I would, I would be in class teaching at the Bible college and I'd be using this overhead projector and I, I would have my markers and I have the green and the purple. And if you know anything about overhead, I'm sure there's a science to overhead projectors, I'm sure there is. But those markers are called water soluble, which means they wipe off of plastic with water. But that also means that they do not wipe off of skin with water. And every single day of my life, for all those years that I was teaching, every single day, I'd be writing on the transparencies, all my markers would be writing on the transparencies, and I'd prove to my, you know, that they come off or whatever, or be able to wipe them off clean and use them again tomorrow and all of that. And I, please don't sit near me when I speak, because I have a terrible habit, and that is, I spit. And I can't tell you the times that all of a sudden my students would start laughing because I'd have purple and green and blue and yellow and red markers all over my face. And I know I do this, you know, I do fiddle with it, whatever, and I know. And so I'd always get this stuff on my face. And so I taught this class right before chapel, right? And I know my students would start laughing at me. Mel, you got, you got ink on your face again. And so before I went to chapel, I'd go to the, I'd go to the restroom. And I go, to the, I go to the restroom, you know, and I go in, and all my life I have to duck down to look in mirrors, you know, so I duck down to look in the mirror, and I'd be like, yeah, there's purple and green and blue and yellow all over my face. And I'm like, okay, let's go to chapel. The point of my dumb illustration is this. When we go to the mirror and see that our face is dirty, you wash your face. Right? If you look in the mirror and you see your face is dirty, the whole point of that, wash your face. The whole point of that, don't walk away and not do anything about it. When we go to the mirror of the Word of God, God wants us to do something about it. And certainly, um, He wants us to keep doing what he's instructed us to do. And certainly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Word of God, God is the one that can make that clear. Not my ability to make you feel bad. God's ability to convict. I love Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4 says, For the Word of God, it's designed to change our lives. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the vision, the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is different. God uses his word to change our lives. Not just learn facts. We can do that in math class. We can do that in geography class. We can do that in history class. The word of God is designed to God to change our lives so that then we can live that way and do what God wants us to do in our lives. Does that make sense? That's the purpose of the Word of God. A purpose, what James says. Um, next. Okay, this, this one, and James, James does that often. James would say, if the Apostle James were here, he would say, okay, it's this practical. What I'm teaching you today is this practical. In other words, he says, if God's Word is real in our life and your faith is real in your life, then you will limit what you say. You will 
verse 20, and, and we're going to get there, which is incredibly convicting even to me. That's hard for you to believe, I know. And that is God wants us to control our tongue. I know you're surprised by that, that I would even say that. Who's kidding who? Our faith means that we control what we say. Verse 26, if, um, yeah, verse 26, if anyone among you thinks him to be religious, we'll get to that in just a second, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religious religion is useless. That's a pretty hard term. Term bridle there. You know the analogy with a horse. A bridle was used to control or to direct, tell a horse which way to turn. Bridle, control, direct our tongue. Don't let what we say control us. But you ever, do you ever do that? Say something and immediately regret it? We all have, right? I think James, again, James would say, real faith, real faith where the Holy Spirit is producing his fruit in our life means that that real faith, that means that, that will control what we say. There's an interesting phrase, and I'll just highlight this and move on, where James says twice in this passage about deceiving ourselves. Folks, I think it's possible um, to even lie to ourselves. In this area, and I know I'm, I'm kind of smiling because I'm proud. I'm, I need to look in the mirror of God's word right now too and see: Is this me? Where we say something and think we're righteous, or think we're holy, or think we're making the right stand, and, and God would say, "Hey, your faith needs to control what you say. You're deceiving yourself. Make sure that the guideline." Make sure that the guideline is the word of God. Don't deceive yourselves. I'm going to let, I'm going to let God himself talk with us about that. But again, let, let's just realize that it's possible to even lie, deceive ourselves in this area. Think somehow we're doing humanly what we want to do instead of what God wants us to do. Number four is limit what you say. There's an interesting word that James uses, and we're going to just highlight this and, and move on. And it's, um, it's the word religion. Christians sometimes don't like the word religion because we say religion is external. In fact, the, the very definition of, of religion is an external demonstration external demonstration of something that's inside or a demonstration of your faith and there are people religion is not faith it's not the same it's not that those are different faith should dictate our religion um, this will probably be the most controversial thing because I, I and yet I'm trying to I'm trying to follow the principles of James right um did you watch the news yesterday? I'm not. I am not. Folks, hear me. I am not making any kind of political statement. This is just an illustration. Yesterday, we heard all day, because of the Supreme Court nominee, 
say religion does not affect what I do or how I'll act for the law. Can I say as emphatically as I can and shout this from the rooftop if I had the ability, your faith must determine what you do. Did I I scream that loud enough? Our faith, what we believe, needs to affect every single thing that I do. And I get it. I'm not not an attorney. I I get it with the law. The law is is there. It's black and white and is there. But if that's the principle of the Word of God, then we we follow the same thing. I'm going to follow the principles of the Word of God no matter what. And so in this thing of religion, religion is an external thing of what you do, an external demonstration of what you do. And it needs to show up in our life. Pure religion, pure and undefiled religion before God. Number five, let your faith show in your life. Before God and the Father, and who, God who is the Father, <coughs> is this, to visit orphans and widows. Visit doesn't mean just go see. You know, um, Benson's in the hospital, so I go visit him. Sorry, Benson, but yeah. It's, uh, no, it doesn't mean I just go see him. It means to do something or to help the needy. And I love the fact, and we're just going to highlight this and then move on, that God's word actually, by the way, talks a lot about widows and orphans. And I love this. Psalm 68 verse 5 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. That's certainly something about the nature, the character, the attributes of God that we're studying on Wednesday nights. Let our faith, I'm quit yelling now, let our faith guide what we do. What just happened there? Last one. Last one. James would say at the end of the phrase, after he says pure and undefiled religion before God, in other words, live the way your faith dictates is this, to visit the orphans and the widows. And I love the fact that God himself intercedes. And then he says to keep himself, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I grew up in an era where, where Christians were supposed to look different. My mom and dad, back when I was in high school, my hair was real long and my mom and dad, I, it was, there was some rebellion to that or whatever. And I'll show you the picture sometimes. It's not pretty, but... You know, it's like we have, the, we have the idea that long hair means you're ungodly or that some external thing. That's not the point here. When James said, it's not saying that we look differently. In other words, we're all going to be monks, shave our heads and wear long robes and live in a convent so that we look differently. That's not the idea. And James explains it by saying this, to keep oneself unspotted from the world or without stain. One of the things that I'm so glad about culture and how culture has changed is very seldom do I have to wear a tie anymore. I think I have stained every single tie I've ever owned. A stain on a tie, stain on a shirt. You know, you know, you, you don't want it anymore, right? Because it's stained, it's been defiled. And God wants to keep ourselves unspotted, unstained, un affected. In other words, he wants us to impact the world around us more than the world around us affects us. He wants us to be clean, without spot, usable by God 
That's what God wants from his believers. And I thought about that a lot. I think, and we need to be, we need to be done. But I think if James were here today in our vernacular, our language, I think he'd say, do unbelievers want to be what you are? I mean, think about that. Go to the mirror of the word God and ask yourself, does the world around me want to be what I am? I mean, are we angry? Do we blow up and use our mouth and our language incorrectly? Those are just a couple of things that are here. Does the world around us want that? Probably not. And I think there's one other very convicting question. Remember I said a couple times already today, every time we go to the Word of God, every single time, we need to ask ourselves, okay, what do we do now? And I think we need to ask ourselves, does our life match what we believe or maybe even what we, what we say we believe? Does our life match that? James is writing to Jewish believers who are scattered. They're facing incredible trials. They're facing difficult temptations. Because of that, God has given us his word and that we need to live by the principles of his word. And James would say, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And my prayer is that your word would be alive and real and would create action steps in our lives. Father, even right now, as we go to the mirror of your word and see ourselves there, we need to ask ourselves, does my life match up to what I say I believe or what I believe? Does my life match up so that people around me will see that? And God will be glorified. God, you'll be glorified for my life. Father, I thank you for how practical your word is and how your word is designed, not just facts and figures, but it's designed to change our lives. Father, thank you for how you've used your word in my life to change my life. And God, I just pray that your word would continue to work in my life and I would continue to live by the principles of your word for your glory for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, thanks for coming today, and uh, we're done. And, uh, boy, I hope you come Wednesday night. We're going to talk about the, the love of God, for God so loved the world. See you, everybody.